הרבנים והרבנים, מוריי ורבותיי. הגמרא מצאת תנא מרי בברי דרב חונא, ברי דרב ירמיה באבו, אל יפתה אדם מחברו אלא מתוך והלך. When one comes to take leave of a friend, one should do so only in the midst of a dvar halach, by communicating to that friend a word of halacha. Shemitoch kach zachreihu, because through that halacha, which you have given the other person, he will always remember you. Rabbi Yirmiyabar Abba was saying a remarkable thing. Our lives are made up are constructed out of relationships. We live amongst friends and colleagues, and above all, amongst teachers. But every human relationship is fragile. People part. They move on. We separate. How then do we construct permanence out of these relationships? The answer, of course, is through memory. People leave. We remember them, they stay in our heart. But memory too is impermanent. After Yud Beis Chodesh, even according to Halakha, after 12 months somebody is forgotten. And they've gone. What then is the only permanent form of memory? The answer is the Dvah Halakha. Because a Halakha is not just something that we remember. A Halakha is something that we live. When somebody has taught us a halacha, he has taught us something that changes our lives. When we know that this we must do or this we must not do and we know that because of him, part of us has changed. And therefore something of that person lives permanently in us. Halacha is the one bond which is permanent and the one memory that endures. has taken his leave of us and of this world. And we, whether we met him or not, whether we knew him or not, are bereaved. Because we are not merely his chaverim, his friends, but we are his avelin, his mourners. Chacham Shemait says the Gemara, when a sage dies, hakol krovav, every one of us is his relative. The Ramah in Yerodea, Simashin Mem, rules a very interesting thing. He says that this halacha, that we are bereaved when a chacham dies, applies primarily to Rabo, to somebody who personally taught us. But then he adds a qualification. Oh, he says, or alternatively, or alternatively, we knew of, we heard of, we studied the teachings which he originates. Because once that happens, he has become our teacher. Our Rav is not merely somebody who taught us personally whom we met. It includes someone whose writings we read, whose ideas we absorbed. 
And it becomes as if we knew him personally, as if we were his personal Talmudim. Not only the 2,000 rabbis and more to whom the late Rav Soloveitchik gave Tmicha, not only the many, many thousands more whom he taught in Yeshiva University, and not only the hundreds of thousands who heard him give his great lectures in Boston and elsewhere, but all of us who read his books, who knew of his ideas, are his Talmudim and hence his Avenim. And truly we feel bereaved and as if we live in a doyasom, a bereaved generation. And yet the truth is, Kvodarav, Rav Soloveitchik knew how to be Menachem Avenim. He knew how to comfort it. And it is as if he spent his entire life preparing for this moment to give us comfort. Not only did he leave us with a dvahalacha, he left us, in a sense, with the dvahalacha. His whole life was the Dvahalach. His great work, Ishalacha, the halachic personality, the halachic <coughs> mind, in a very real sense transformed our whole understanding of halacha. And all he ever wanted to be known as, as Rabbi Kimchi has already mentioned, as his son-in-law, the Valor Aaron Soloveitchik and his uh, daughter, told me, all he ever wanted to be known as was not as a thinker or as a philosopher, but just as a malamid, somebody who taught Gemara and Halach. And because of that, not only will we remember him, but as long as Jews studied Dva Hashem Zehalacha, so long as any Jew study Halacha, he will be remembered. His works will live, and hence he will live. The righteous, even when they die, are still called living, and he will always live in our mind. It is impossible to do any kind of justice to his teaching, and I won't even try. I've written about his work. There is much more, of course, still to be said. But I just want to say two things this evening, a clow and a prop a general and a specific point. And let me begin with the Prat and with two personal memories. I had the privilege of meeting the Rav twice. The second occasion was exactly ten years ago when I was invited to be the Rav of what was, I, I think, his own area of the young Israel Shul in Brookline. Interestingly enough, the burning issue in Brookline was making an Erev. And the question of any Rav was, can he succeed in making an Erev? As a result, I had to be taken to meet the Rabbonim in Boston to see if they had faith that I could make an Erev. I went to see the uh, Boston Rabbi, the Telma Rabbi, Rabbi Soloveitchik, the son-in-law, Rabbi Yitzchak And of course I was taken to see the Rav himself. He was then already 80, and he had already then, I think, been quite unwell for some time. And in fact, those who were present at that gathering told me it was one of the last occasions in which he gathered, recovered his full vigor. 
The reason was very simple, and the, the family told me this. We had with us our daughter, Gila, who was then six months old. And I hadn't realized it before, because the Rav was, uh, if any of you met him, you will know this, was an exceptionally austere personality. And yet there was one thing he loved. He loved his little children. He took my daughter on his knee, kept her there for the whole of quite a long conversation. He loved new life. And his spirit revived as we held her. He wanted me uh, to come to Brookline and be aroused there. And he said a very interesting thing. I can still remember the sentences and the tone of voice in which he said them. He said, 40 years ago when I came to America, congregations in America were vulgar. And if you wanted to succeed as a rabbi, you had to be vulgar as well. He said, today congregations are completely different. They want to learn. And they want their rabbi to learn. And they want their rabbi to be able to teach. To be aroused today, he said, is something with dignity. In fact, the extent of the transformation of America in 40 years astonished him. It was as if he could hardly believe what had happened. 40 years ago, when he came in the 19, early 1940s to Boston, America was a tray from Medina. And his mere, what was then, yeah, 30 years, 40 years exactly, it had become a Mokham Torah, a place of learning. In fact, he said to me, the Hasmada, the devotion to learning of young American Jews is greater than it was in the great days of my late grandfather to sell Reb Chaim of Bristol. The quality, he said, I won't talk about, but the quantity is great. And I came away understanding what Chazal meant when they said, The Torah was given with three things, with fire, with water, and in the wilderness. In the 1940s, America was a midbar, a wilderness. But the Rav proved that if you gave Torah with ash, with fire, and with mayim, with a thirst, and, and a thirst-quenching capacity, then even in a midbar you could create terror. But of course what I knew was what he in his anava, his extraordinary self-abasing humility, would not even have thought, let alone said, is that that transformation of a country in 40 years from a midbar to a Mokham Torah was largely due to one person, to him. There are very, very few people in the history of Amnesty. I mean, we have had in previous generations stretching back to the Chachmei Mishma, Baruch Hashem, we have had Gedolim and Gedole Gedolim. Many of them. Hundreds of them. But there are very, very few Gedolim to whom it was given to change the contours, the character of an entire Jewish community, an entire country. And Rav Soloveitchik did it. He did it for the United States, the largest Jewish community in the world. There were others undoubtedly who played a part in that development, who built schools and yeshivot, but mainly within a limited circle of Talmidim. Rav Soloveitchik did it across the country, in depth, at the grassroots. That was the first second time I met him. But it was the first time I met him that I discovered how he did it. 
The first meeting took place 15 years earlier, 25 years ago, in 1968, when I was a student. It was, took place in the corridors of Yeshiva University. The Rav was accustomed to sit in his chair and prepare the Gemara Shia, or sit in with the, his Talmudim as they prepared the Gemara Shia. And he said for you, I will come outside, and I remember sitting on the bench with him just outside the room in the corridor for, I think, two hours. <clears throat> and in those two hours, he taught me about halacha. And in order to understand what Rav Soloveitchik taught a whole generation about halacha, we have to understand and try and remember what halacha was before Rav Soloveitchik. Before he succeeded in being Mahdiya Atarala Yoshna in restoring its former glory. For generations of Jews, Halacha was Hamasa Yatsun. It was Jewish law, the do's and don'ts, for the Arba Chelke Shulchanorach, Lamed Tesmalachas of Shabbos, this of the Heter, it was the Shach, the Tzaz, the Morganavon. And for generations of Jews, that was enough. It was more than enough. That was the Avas Olam Beis Yisrael Amchal Havta. That was the everlasting love which HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us that he taught us all these laws. And therefore, we rejoiced in them because in those laws were our lives and the length of our days. But in fact, for at least a century before Rav Soloveitchik, Halacha was Munachat Bikaran Halacha was dethroned in one community after another. It didn't speak to the spirit of the age. For a century, Jews outside a very narrow circle of Shomrei Mitzvot were not interested in the Shulchan. They were interested in ethical monotheism, in universal brotherhood, in tolerance, in peace. They loved the words of the prophets. At most, they read Pirkei Alvos. The late Gershu Sholem once pointed out that Martin Buber wrote two volumes called The Tales of the Hasidim. You're familiar with the work. And you can read the whole of those Tales of the Hasidim without ever discovering that Hasidim kept halacha. And that was an elevated intellectual level. At the level that you and I remember from the generation of our parents, it was very simple. God doesn't mind whether you carry on Shabbat so long as you're a good human being. That was Halakha. Adolf Abado was Master Beresis. The great things were the philosophical things. The double cotton was Havayas Rabbi Baroba. The Gemara was a relatively small thing and overlooked. Halakha was legalistic, casuistic, concerned with minutia. If you read the books and sermons of that period, that whole hundred years, between 1840 and 1940, published in English. Read them and see how many mentions there are of the word halacha, or of any particular halacha either. They're totally missing. What Rav Soloveitchik did was therefore remarkable and unique. He transformed the thinking of a whole generation. Today, my publisher in America tells me that if you want to sell a book in America, it has to have the word halacha in the title. They have hundreds of books and periodicals in halacha. 
Even the people who don't believe in halacha have halacha. They have conservative halacha, reform halacha. Rav Soloveitchik was not only the ish halacha, the halachic personality par excellence, but he restored halacha, the word of halacha, to the language of Jewish thought. How did he do it? He explained to me in the corridor 25 years ago. When I first saw Rav Soloveitchik in the corridor, I understood what it means in the Torah when they say about Ravjir, Aleph HaSolos, about Moshe Rabbeinu when he descended from the uh, mountain. He didn't know that his face was shining. And people were scared to approach him. I was terrified of Rav Soloveitchik. I was terrified to approach him. He had burning eyes. He was obviously a lonely man of faith. And yet, when we started talking about halacha, he started chuckling, he became animated, he put his arm around me. He was what Elie Wiesel calls a soul on fire. And what he said was very simple, and he's so deep. And it had never been said before. He said, in the past, Jewish thought, Jewish philosophy, Machshevet Yisrael, and halacha were two different things. They were different, they were disconnected. In truth, he said, there's only one thing, and that one thing is halacha. The only way you can think Jewishly, you can construct Jewish philosophy, is out of halacha. He gave me one example at that time, 25 years ago. He said, you have read Professor Heschel's book, A.J. Heschel, called The Sabbath. I said, yes. He said, it's a beautiful book, isn't it? I said, yes. And he said, what does he call Shabbos? A sanctuary in time. He said, this is an idea of a poet. It's a lovely idea. But what is Shabbos? Shabbos, he said, is Lama Tez Malachas. It's the 39 categories of work, and they're told us. And it is out of that halacha, and not out of poetry, that you have to construct a theory of Shabbos. That was his example. I think the truth is, maybe he felt from giving the real example, which he really said, as is very clear from his writing. The real example was the Rambam. There were two Rambams. There was the Rambam who was the Ishalacha, the great man of Halacha, the greatest man of Halacha of all time. I mean, of the Middle Ages at any rate. Who wrote the Mishnah Torah. And there was the Rambam, the great philosopher of the Moran of Uchim, of the guide of the Kutlech. And they're two different Rambams. They speak a different language. There's an argument about the scholars, which is the real Rambam. But there were two different Rambams. And the Rav was critical of the Rambam for that. He writes in the Halachic mind that the Rambam, when he wrote philosophy, was influenced by the ancient Greeks, by the medieval Arabic thinkers, the Islamic neo-Aristotelians, neither of whom were Jewish at all. When Rav Soloveitchik philosophized, the man he put in front of him eternally was the Rambam, but never ever the Rambam of the Moran Always the Rambam 
of halacha of the Mishnah Torah. What was the difference? What was the incredible change that the Rav brought about? Which really, I think, has is revolutionary in the history of Jewish thought. The easiest way I can explain it is simply this: in the phrase "pa'amei hamitzvot," the reasons for the command. That phrase has two senses. It means the reasons for the commandment. And reasons are like uh, what you would call like honey. They're external to the mitzvah. Reasons deal with things that happen before the mitzvah or after the mitzvah. The Rambam in the guide, as a philosopher, deals with the mitzvahs and he explains what the historical background was, what was before, and what the consequences of the mitzvah are, what is after. That's for the Rambam, the Tamei Mitzvah, the before and after. They're external to the mitzvah. However, the phrase Ta'amei HaMitzvot could mean something completely different. Ta'am not only means a reason, it means a taste. Ta'amu Uru Kitova. The taste of the mitzvah. What does the mitzvah feel like? Not externally, but internally. Not before and after, but Bichas Maitha, while you are doing the mitzvah. And the Rav actually believed and proved in all his words that when you did mitzvot, you entered a world of thought that was quite distinctive and it was Jewish philosophy. The Sefer Chinuch says, What you act affects what you feel. The Rav says, in effect, what you do affects how you think. Halacha is not merely a way of doing, it's a way of seeing the world in a very minor sense. Obviously, we see things in the halacha that don't exist in, in, in reality. A, a, a good asik, good achis, akuma, all these imaginary machitsas. That, that one's looking a little bit like an imaginary machitsas. They exist. In halacha, they don't exist in the set. An Arab. You know, people always see things in an Arab that don't really exist. That, that, that we understand. When you're an ish halacha, you see things in a different way. And he profoundly meditated on this, above all on Hilchus Tshuva. How being an ish tshuva, a person of tshuva, your whole personality and way of thinking about yourself changed. And a person of tshuva was constantly making himself. The Rav loved chidush, renewal, and he believed that the greatest chidush was in the self. When you really read the Rambam Tilchus Tshuva, you understood that the mitzvah of tshuva was to be machadeh, and that's more to renew yourself. And understand what the Rav did for a generation who thought halacha was boring and defect and dry. He made it vivid. He made it vast. From the day the temple was destroyed, the Holy One, blessed be He, only had in His world the four cubits of halacha. Rav Soloveitchik turned it around and in effect said, it is in the four cubits of halacha that you find the infinity of HaKadosh Baruch. It was literally, uh, metaphorically, as if the Rav had found halacha, offer min ha'adama, dry dust, 
Vayipach ba'apov nishmas chayim, and he breathed into it the breath of life. Vatihi halacha lenefesh chaya, and he made halacha zemelam. That is the clause. So when the Rav left us a dvar halacha, he left us the dvar halacha, a renewal of our whole understanding of halacha. That is the clause. Having said this, I want to add just one point. It is very, very striking in the writings of the Rav that the Rav from as early an age as we can date it, i.e. from his earliest published writings in the 1940s, was preoccupied with death. Time and again he comes back to it in his writings. In Ishalacha, at various points he keeps coming back to it. He explains how the Ishalacha, the halachic personality, is calm, serene, detached, like a mathematician, unfazed by anything because he comes to the world with his a priori categories. He, he has things mapped in advance. But there is one thing, he says, that troubles the Ishalacha, the fear of death. He tells stories several times about his late grandfather, Rabbi Chaim of Brisk, who was terrified of death. He tells in the name of his father, Reb Moshe, that when fear of death would seize hold of Reb Chaim, he would immerse himself into the laws of Avelis and the laws of Tumor and various things. And those laws of, de of death and defilement would somehow or other cause his, his terror to subside. He keeps coming back to it. And I, I lose count of the number of times he says so in Ishalacha. If you look through his published writings, many of his most powerful statements are given in the form of Hetzedah. His great lectures on Tshuva were given on Yadka, always to the memory of somebody who had died. Again and again and again he comes back to concepts of Aminut and Avelut. And I know no writer in the Jewish literature may I Maybe that's my ignorance. But I know of no other Jewish writer who speaks about death so often. And in very, very strange ways. For instance, he says, and he gives many examples, I give only one, about the Vilna Gaon. He gives in, the, in Ishalacha an example of the Vilna Gaon that when the Vilna Gaon's brother died and he learns about this on Shabbos, the Vilna Gaon didn't show any emotion at all. As soon as Shabbos was out, because when Shabbos is out long, as soon as Shabbos was out and they'd made Havdolah, the Vilna Gaon burst into tears. Now this for the Rav was the climax of Yishalacha, that you could control your grief, but it, it, when, each time I read these passages, and there are several in the book, I feel this is almost inhuman, what he is asking of us. And I have asked, Mr. Rav, with Mitzah, I have asked myself, why was he so obsessed with death? It's a question I never asked before. And the only answer I can come to is this. 
The Rav lived in Gesoa. His great work, the halachic personality, but the halachic mind, were written while the Holocaust was taking place. And we have to understand that for the Rav, the Shoah was not simply, not simply, if I can use that word, the massacre of six million Jews. It was the massacre of the Torah itself, Kavayachon. The entire world of Torah from which the Rav derived, from which Torah derived, of Brisk, of Volozhin, of Eastern Europe, had gone up in flames. It is very striking that in neither work that he wrote while the Shoah was going on and while he knew it was going on, he mentions the Shoah. The Shoah figures very little in his writing. And yet I believe the impact of the Holocaust on the Rav was immense. He was a person terrified and traumatized by one death, let alone by this unprecedented destruction. Not only did the Shah, I believe, test his faith to its limits, but it left him more significantly not just a survivor, but the survivor. He was the one link with the world of Brisk. He was the one that remained, the one on whom the mantle rested. He was one on his own. And he was one on his own in a land in America of the 1940s, that was utterly insensitive and unreceptive to the values of that world. They never even heard of Brisk. The Rav frequently understood himself on the analogy of his namesake, the biblical Yosef. Like Yosef, he was a lonely man of faith, separated from a world that he had lost, on his own, one alone, in the highly technocratic, hedonistic, cosmopolitan world of Egypt, which was for the Rav the ancient equivalent of the USA. The Rav's first words in print, the Hakdamah to Ishalacha, are a quote from the Gemarian Sotid of Lamed Vav, which talk about Yosef in Potiphar's house how Yosef nearly sinned, were it not that at the moment of sin, there came before him in his mind the memory, the image of his father. Rabbi Yosef Soloveitchik has said, felt all the time that he carried with him and his one source of life was the image in his mind vanished generation. What a person does when they have lived through such an absolute tragedy, we know what a person most wants to do is to forget. We know this because no one wrote about the Shoah for 20 years afterwards. We know this because Noach Ish Tzadik, once he lived through a Shoah, through the Mabu, Wanted to get drunk and forget everything. We know this from Yosef Atzadik himself. And when he lived through the trauma of being separated from the world of his parents, his first gesture was to forget. He called his Bechor Menashe 
God has made me forget all my sufferings in my father's house. That is what a human reaction is, to want to deny and forget. However, Rav Soloveitchik could not forget, because locked up in his soul, in his mind, in his memory, was all that was left of that world, and his memory was all there was that could keep it alive. So throughout his life's work, we sense a profound meditation on the relationship between halakha and death. At three different levels. Firstly, there was the psychological level, which he learned from, from Rabbi Eliyahu Prujna and from the Vilna Gaon, that when you are terrified by death, you study halakha. When you are terrified by the chaos, the abyss, you study order. And that composes the mind. That was the first and least important level. There was a second level. Rav Soloveitchik held that halacha actually changes our perception of time. We believe that what is past is past, what is present is here, and what is future has not yet been. The Rav felt that the ish halacha operates in a completely different framework of time. And listen to what he said. He says the consciousness of each halacha embraces the entire company of Chachmea Masorah, the sages of our tradition. He lives in their midst, discusses and argues questions of halacha with them, delves into and analyzes principles in their <coughs> company. All of them merge into one time experience. He walks alongside Maimonides. He listens to Rabbi Akiva. He senses the presence of Abaya and Rava. And I know uh, from Rabbi Shulman, maybe he will mention this, this was something his Talmudim felt, that he lived in the presence of the past generations of the sages. And then he said that this is what it means when it says, David Melech Yisrael Chai V'Kayan, or Yaakov Avinu Lomet, or Moshe Rabbeinu Lomet, that the great sages of our past never died. He says there can be no death among the company of the sages of tradition. If you study halacha, you bring people who have died back to life again. And by studying the halachas of Brit and that destroyed, murdered world, he brought it to life again. That was the second level. But there was a third and deeper level still. In Kol Dodido Feh, he said something very profound. He says there are two responses to suffering. There's the ordinary human response and there is the halachic response. The ordinary human response is to see yourself as an object. Why is this happening to me? It's happening to me and I'm an object. The halachic response is to see it as a subject. And the ish halacha does not ask why is this happening to me but what shall I do? The Rav knew what he had to do. Raise up a new generation of disciples that would restore those who were murdered in his kingdom. The Rav always knew and always thought about the fact that the Rambam says in Hilchus Avel that Avelus is part of Tshuva, that mourning is part of a process of repentance and return. 
And the Rav never forgot this. His mourning for a whole murdered generation took the form of bringing the next generation to Tshuva, back, to return back to the halacha which had been so depopulated. But even more profoundly, the word Tshuva does not merely mean return. Nahashiv doesn't just mean to come back, it means to restore. Somehow or other in these disciples who never before existed in America, somehow the souls of those who had died were being restored, reborn, who knows how. And I believe Rav Soloveitchik's absolve spent his whole life dedicated to Trias Hamesi, bringing a dead world back to life again. Adkideka, to the point that he was able to say ten years ago that Brisk has been reborn in America. And through this he proved in quite unmysterious and tangible terms that halacha triumphs over death. He triumphed over death through one man, through Harav Hagon of Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, who stood as the sole and very lonely link between the dead and the living. He was the Udmutzal Me'esh, the branch plucked from the fire that was replanted and became again a tree of life. And therefore I say that few people in the history of Am Yisrael have achieved so much. It was as if the Rav had lived 